time for the War Drums of Makua, the season of battle. Sponsored by South Pacific Health, Savage Music Studios, and Life Extend Unlimited. Implements of war not only come in physical weaponry, the Samoa Nava War Club, the Nifo Oti, the War Blade, the Hawaiian Pikoi, tripping weapons to keep the enemy from running away from the battle, or the Leo Mano, or Shark's Lay, a wooden dagger with shark's teeth embedded all around it, or in the techniques of hand-to-hand combat, the Hawaiian Lua, to break bones, the Samoan Lima Lama, understanding the hand, the Maori Mao Rakao, but oftentimes with a strategic military, political, and economic defense. Most people don't know that Polynesians actually built forts around their shores to tell them when enemy forces were coming, to call the forces to war, or to wage battle against the enemy invaders. That's because most of the structures were torn down by European and American invasions. The existence of impressive, man-made fortifications on the rugged, jungle-clad peaks of both Fiji and Upolu in Western Samoa has thus been known for more than 150 years. In 1831, a European ship marooned in Bua Bay, Fiji, describes in a ship's manuscript in detail the construction of a hillside fort, as well as other shoreside forts, at least six. In Samoa, in 1840, the United States surveyed the islands and discovered the same six hillside forts and seven more were mentioned in their report. These were stone walls four feet thick and four feet high, surrounded by a dry ditch at 20 feet wide and 10 feet deep. Most had about an acre of land in the middle of the walls and at the center of the land within the walls was a rock about 20 feet tall and 100 feet square. A fali or house in the middle of the rock and contained what I would assume were two of the longo or very large war drums to call the tribe to war. On the outside of the ditches were woven mats and living fences that were described in expedition journals as so strong as to defy all efforts to penetrate it and so dense as to be impossible to see with any distinctness what might be going on within. The woven walls were grown to be about 12 feet tall. Living fences are trees and bushes that are grown to intertwine with one another and is so strong that you cannot take one tree or bush out without having to drag the rest of the fence line out as well. The root system, firmly in the ground going down 10 feet and out on both sides about 10 feet. A solid foundation that can't be penetrated very easily, even today. These types of forts or fortresses built on the shore, cliffs and tops of the mountains imply that even ancient Polynesians were endowed with a certain amount of military strategy and engineering prowess. Their weaponry, built with very dense wood and embedded with shark's teeth and obsidian, would suggest that the skills to kill was indeed advanced. Trip ropes attached to spears so that a warrior could trip another and then finish them off? Ingenious. 
hooks surrounded by obsidian or shark's teeth and built large enough to fit a thigh inside so you could take out a main artery with one upward pull and twist with an all-in-one movement was labor-saving. I was told once by a makua that Polynesians like to fight so close that you can take the mana from the enemy by sucking in their last exhaled breath. The combat weaponry is made so that when you are close enough, you can tear through and eviscerate arteries in arms, legs, and the neck. In the Disney movie, Moana, Maui's hook, made with thick and dense wood and embellished with shark's teeth all around, was meant for a very different purpose than what Disney imparts. The hook was not a fairy wand with mystical powers. It was given its deadly potential by the owner of the weapon. This is not a fake weapon. It's very real. Some Polynesians frame the ancient weapons in their homes as hand-me-downs to remind them of who they are and where they came from. Mine hang on the wall of my foyer to not only remind me, but my children of their heritage. Another favorite weapon looked almost like a scoop, rounded at the top with a handle on the bottom and again embedded with shark's teeth all around the edge. It was a knife used to not only penetrate, but to pull the entrails and vital organs out when it was withdrawn. When the United States forcefully took American Samoa, an inventory was made and all known fortification sites in American Samoa totaled about 170. The main one was a series of stone-lined trenches on Tafuna Plain, once owned by my family. Many more prehistoric sites have been found since the 1970s and destroyed in order to develop roads and the harbor for the U.S. Navy. The history and ruins of our people and the strategic value of that information has been fading for years like our language, our culture, and our lifestyle. We as a culture and people are being absorbed by those that own us. The clinical word is cultural assimilation or acculturation, which means without culture, and is an even more effective weapon than hand-to-hand combat and war clubs, and even more efficient in destroying the protection of a fort or fortress that a civilization relies on to survive. Hawaii was absorbed by the U.S. because of Pearl Harbor. At least, that's what we're taught in school. But the truth is that the Hawaiian nation, and yes, it was a nation with an internationally recognized sovereign crown and government system recognized by other nations, including the U.S. and Great Britain, was forced into submission by the U.S. Navy, influenced by American merchants and clergy, all coveting the land and resources long before Pearl Harbor. Our king was murdered. Our queen was enslaved until the day she died. And because we are Polynesian, we will never forget, ever. Then an Ali'i, whose sovereign duty was to care for the people and to hold sacred the Kapu, was humiliated, murdered, enslaved, and our lands were taken from us. But this would not be the only time, nor the only group of people in the name of God that would be enslaved, humiliated, and our labor and ingenuity stolen because
because of the color of our skin. Salt Lake City, Utah has one of the greatest concentrations of Pacific Islanders in the mainland United States. Only California has more Islanders than Utah. There is a town called Yosepa in the West Desert of Utah. In an article written by Richard Markosian in 2011 for Utah Stories, he writes, quote, the historic markers relate an obviously sanitized, edited version of the former town's history. If we were to believe the officially presented rhetoric, the story is cut and dry. Once upon a time, living in a tropical paradise, a group of LDS Hawaiian converts chose to come to Utah to establish their own town in one of the most remote, inhospitable regions in the West Desert. They worked hard, many died, but they persevered and survived. And in 1911, the town won an award as the most progressive city in Utah. Then mysteriously, six years later, they all decided to return to Hawaii to help build the first Mormon temple in Laie. And they all lived happily ever after. The end. That would be the Mother Goose version of the story of Yosepa. But the truth is more like Grimm's fairy tale. Just six years after Yosepa was showing such promise and beautification, all the residents were asked to leave. Then president, longtime patriarch to the Pacific Islanders, Joseph F. Smith, prophet of the LDS Church, told them they must vacate and return to Hawaii to help build the temple in Laie. The town's 35,000 acres homes and belongings were subsequently sold and pocketed by the church and all the homes, miles of irrigation canals, farms, animals, and everything the Pacific Islanders built was abandoned and left to waste. Detailed records and ledgers remain in the church archives under a sealed status. Utah Stories has requested access to those personal records of Joseph F. Smith, and the church has declined to allow Utah Stories and other historians to gain access to answer the simple question of why. According to previous scholars, Yosepo was costing the church more money than they were gaining. That for years, Yosepa had proven a poor investment, but this claim runs contrary to the prior awards the town received for beautification and the ingenuity and vast networks of irrigation canals that can still be seen today, end quote. So the islanders were brought to Utah to make a profit for the church, enslaved by taking them far from the islands and their culture to languish in the inhospitable climate of the church's members who believed in racial inequality and followed that design to the point of lynching Polynesian men simply for being looked at by white women of the church. Questioned by Marcosian, quote, why were the Hawaiians not given the land they made viable? Why were they told to leave after suffering so much to make the town a success? None of the research conducted on Yosepa by Dr. Benjamin Pichels nor by Matthew Kester points to clear answers. Nor does the LDS Church wish for this question to be answered. We hope the LDS Church will see that the Pacific Islanders deserve answers. History is owed an accurate accounting." End quote. They would rather this town and this story 
be forgotten. They don't want to remember. They don't want to remember what happened here, says Kori Ho'opi'iania, one of the last remaining direct descendants of Yosepa. As is the Polynesian custom, he continues to care for the cemetery, and he and his nonprofit association have built a pavilion where 2,000 Pacific Islanders celebrate every Memorial Day. Ho'opi'iania says, quote, Without malice, I say the way the church treated the Hawaiian pioneers here wasn't right, end quote. Yosepa was just another fort or fortress that was plundered and taken apart by the Palangi with the attitude and belief biased in favor of a socially elite class of people. Some believe, like I do, that the LDS president, Joseph F. Smith, who served a mission in Hawaii, loved the Polynesian people, spoke the language, and understood their customs, saw how they were treated, and what was being written by the press and believed by the community. He asked them to return to the islands because he was afraid after his death that nobody would care to look after them. And with the bias and prejudice of the white members, things could escalate and become worse for them. Individuals can be softened, they can learn, they can become part of the solution. But when they are put into a group that has no, as the islanders say, ho'oponopono, or reconciliation, they become irrational, biased, riotous, and cruel, and their actions reflect the nature of their leaders. The Bayonet Constitution effectively annexed Hawaii as the United States Territory. This, by and large, abrogated Native Hawaiians the right to own property, even in their own country. Under their new U.S. Constitution, only whites at that time were granted property ownership rights. Why did so many Pacific Islanders believe Utah would be a better option than their native lands? At play were a variety of factors, including the strength of their newly adopted religion. Having cultivated strong similarities to native spiritual rituals in the Mormon missionaries' presentation at that time, believing that these strangers, these palangi, would not lie to them or have any other alternative motives except to love them as they were, that the palangi accepted their ea, or individualism that the second coming of Christ was nearing and the new Zion located in Salt Lake City would be at the epicenter of the anticipated great events, that they would enjoy forgiveness for their sins and partake of the bounty as the new promised people. I guess James Cook and his crew did not teach the Polynesians the fool me once principle, the truth of the white and Mormon church popular perception of the Hawaiians was that they were promiscuous sinners, afflicted by the devil's disease, leprosy, an illness no Hawaiian had ever contracted before the 1830s, when it likely had been introduced by immigrants to the islands. Assumptions about various dark-skinned foreigners were accepted based on religious, pseudo-scientific precepts and media portrayals. The Deseret News and the Salt Lake Tribune published insidious invectives or treacherous, insulting, and abusive stories informing readers of the horrors of leprosy and making islanders out to be the most frightening, 
dark-skinned, leprous adulterers and savages adapted to the genteel climates of leisure and tropical fruits, that they were lazy and ill-suited to hard work in the harsh climate of the western U.S. They should have done their homework into the fort or fortress building of the 170 structures on the islands in the dense jungles and tropical heat. I guess they also did not know that digging miles of ditches for irrigation in the hot and dry sun of the desert was not something that a lazy person would do. Each immigrant group, new to New Zion, occupied a particular rung on the elaborate social ladder. Pacific Islanders found themselves at the very bottom rung, categorized with runaway slaves and scrutinized even more closely. The nicknamed Mormon Church had a long history from 1849 to 1978 of open racism to dark skin. Jane Manning was a black slave and servant owned by Joseph Smith and then later by Brigham Young. She was devoted, faithful, and virtuous in her belief and practice of the church principles and repeatedly requested endowment in the temple but was denied because of her skin color. Joseph Smith was not against blacks holding the priesthood. As a matter of fact, he encouraged participation and even promoted blacks into the higher priesthood calling as an elder. But after his death and under Brigham Young, who promoted discriminatory views about black people and demoted the black men who actively held the priesthood, blacks were denied participation in the church ordinances or blessings because they bore the mark of Cain and were considered evil. As a result of their dark skin, most Pacific Island converts had a very difficult time finding work or fully assimilating. Some found jobs working on the railroad or in the Salt Lake City LDS Temple, but most were required to live separately from the whites in their own neighborhoods and enclaves. This wasn't uncommon. Salt Lake City had areas like Greektown, Chinatown, Japantown, Swedetown, and various neighborhoods defined by religion, ethnicity, and wealth. The Mormon Church, which was prominent in Salt Lake, part of the Utah Territory, encouraged the separation of races and preached the superiority of white skin from the pulpit, but also discouraged the fraternization of the minority converts who were convinced to leave their homelands and come beneath the authority of the white community and into submission. This is the culture of war. This is the future of those of us who have lost all that we are and all that we were to become. When your history is torn apart, houses burned, everyone killed, your culture, tradition, and language erased, even God forgets that you, your family, and your people existed, which is the whole purpose of acculturation. My grandmother used to say, when you need to submit to authority, it means it's finished, nothing you can do. But there's a saying I like much better. A cry on the battlefield, Imua, it means forward movement, usually said during war or encouragement for conviction to push forward towards a goal. Let's get this done. And as long as people like me tell stories of our people, 
tell about customs, legends, traditions, history, and bloodlines, the war drums for our people will ever beat on. Keep listening for more episodes of The War Drums of Makua, The Season of Battle. Brought to you by SouthPackHealth.com. The wisdom of the past is the health of the future. SavageMusicStudios.com and Life Extend Unlimited. The taste you know, the results you prefer.